Hello and welcome to WXVU's ProfCast, a podcast where we interview Villanova professors about their research and experience in academia. I'm Ryan Derry, the business director here at WXVU, and I have the privilege to be joined by Dr. Welsius. Dr. Welsius, how are you? Good. How are you, Ryan? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's get right into it and talk about your PhD. So could you tell us where you completed it and what it was about? I did my PhD at UCLA. I finished that in 2018. And my research project that I focused on there was all about why countries stop manipulating their currencies. So it was this long post-World War II um, problem of countries engaging in currency manipulation. So driving down their exchange rates to an undervalued level. It worked very well for development um, cases such as Japan, South Korea, Germany, all utilize this uh, policy to grow their economies by exporting more goods. China then becomes Exhibit A as a problem country, a country that engages in this and politicians get very angry. But there was no research out there that explained why countries stopped doing it. So why did China stop doing this in the early 2000s? Why did Japan stop? Why did South Korea stop? And so my dissertation then provided an answer to that. Mm. Could you talk, give a quick example of how a country would drive down its currency? Sure. So in the case of China, uh, what you would do is any number of things. Uh, the main thing is um, if you can control your nominal exchange rate, so push the nominal exchange rate down. Um, but research has shown, and actually I'm discussing this in my class today, my senior mm. seminar, um, you also need to have some sort of control over institutions, so control over labor markets, control over um, the financial sector. And if you have that, you have the ability to control the exchange rate and not make as many people mad. Mm -hmm. right? So usually if you have a strong manufacturing sector and you have control over your labor markets and control over your financial sector, uh, it's much easier to maintain an undervalued exchange rate. And that comes directly from research by David Steinberg at uh, John Hopkins. Mm, very interesting. So what were the findings? Why do countries stop? So the, the thing that I found is that the countries that tend to stop are countries that are heavily dependent on global value chains and their trade. So the, in the case of the historical case of Japan or South Korea or Germany, these are countries that are, are making goods and they're exporting those goods abroad. Um, but most of those things were made in their domestic market. So they're, they're made in Germany, they're made in Japan, and they're exported. So uh, you know, imagine a Toyota car is being made in Japan, exported to the United States. Now most goods are made up of products coming from all over the world, global value chains. Mm -hmm. uh, and as these countries become more dependent on those imports to make those goods, I find that uh, they tend to undervalue their exchange rate less. So mm -hmm. if you're a manufacturing firm and you need to import all the widgets to make a, a good, um, you're not gonna be very happy if you have to pay a lot of money for those uh, parts. And so as countries become more integrated in these global value chains, uh, the more likely it is that they are not going to undervalue or manipulate their currencies mm. anymore. And in the case of China, did China's entry into the WTO in 1999, mm -hmm. they did? Did that affect their decision to stop do engaging in mm -hmm. this practice? So 2001, but very close. Okay. <laughs> 2001, China China enters the WTO. Uh, yes, as, as you become more integrated in the uh, in world trade, um, it's almost you know going to happen that you're going to be reliant on this in the modern economy. Mm -hmm. uh, so the economy of the 1950s is obviously more dependent on building things locally. But as globalization um, is unfettered, you have capital moving across borders very easily. Uh, you have individuals, uh, so labor moving across borders rather uh, easily, uh, and goods moving across borders rather easily. It becomes much cheaper to, uh, we call it fragmenting your production process. Mm -hmm. So to, to outsource certain parts of your production process to another country, uh, and then import those elements to make up your good and then, then export that thing. So yes, I think China becoming a, mem a member of the WTO in, in the World Trade Organization in 2001 uh, allows them to, 
to engage more in these global value chains. Mm. So now I have a question about your mentor for your mm -hmm. PhD. What were their research uh, experience like and did it influence your research decisions? 100%. So my uh, PhD uh, dissertation chair is Ronald Rogowski. Uh, oh, you could pull the mic a little closer. Oh, pull the mic a little bit closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, Ronald Rogowski, when I got accepted to UCLA, he wrote me an email uh, in perfect German. I, at that point, mm. I was living in Berlin doing a master's in economics. I applied to UCLA. I got in. Uh, and he wrote me an email asking or telling me why I should go to, to UCLA. And it was all in German. And I was very surprised. Mm. Uh, it was perfect German. Uh, when I got there, we obviously became very close because he became my mentor. Uh, and most of my research is very much influenced by what he has done. So the work that he has done looks at uh, historically how major shocks impact domestic politics. So his famous work from the 1980s is all about how the Great Depression and the, the shock of, of the demand shock from the Great Depression affects domestic coalitions in countries. So you see a shift in the U.S. in the 1930s towards the New Deal. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you have these different sectors within economies that are going to shift uh, their power resources based on how they're affected by an economic shock. And then he just has a, a new book coming out um, looking even more historically uh, at supply shocks. So when you have a global pandemic um, mm -hmm. that is a supply shock, you have fewer workers, you have fewer resources, what happens to domestic political coalitions when that occurs? He looks at the Black Death, he looks at COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's actually coming out in uh, maybe a couple months. So in that case, um, a lot of my work looks at that. How do shocks affect uh, politics? Um, but I'm coming at that from, I guess, maybe a, a new generation where we have a wide availability of data. Mm -hmm. uh, so applying data and quantitative methods to testing a lot of the things that he has thought about, uh, but using a more rigorous quantitative analysis mm. of it. Very interesting. And I do want to get more into the methods in a little bit. But before we do that, uh, I want to clarify for the listener, the field that you're in is global political economy, correct? Correct. In political science, we would actually call it international political international, economy, okay. but same thing. Okay. So could you give a brief explainer about international political economy and maybe some of the history of the discipline? Sure. So we can think of, go to the elements, the root elements of the title international political economy. So economics is the study of, of uh, their scarce resources and how do we allocate those resources. Um, political economy is then when you bring a state into that, a state says that uh, you can allocate resources here or there. Uh, that's political economy. International political economy is now you allow those things to move across borders. So these scarce resources are no longer constrained to your domestic economy, but now they're international. And so we look at states rather than just uh, leaders uh, or domestic politics. So we're looking at international relations of this global movement of, of resources. So that's kind of the field. Um, it's, you know, it's been around for, for a while. Um, I think my, my advisor has played a, Ron Rogowski has played a, a pretty formidable role in that. Mm. Um, and there is an International Political Economy Society, uh, shortened mm. is IPES, uh, that gets together once a year. And that's kind of where most of the scholars who are, are studying this uh, uh, continue to, to talk about their research. So the, the format of, of IPE is different depending on who, you know, just like in IR, you have realist theories, mm -hmm. you have constructivists, same thing in IPE. Um, I kind of fall under the open economy framework, which is the idea that as you open your economy, there's going to be distributional consequences of, of doing so. So globalization is going to have winners and losers. Um, you look at the interests within the economy, and then you can understand better how political outcomes uh, occur. Mm. And could you talk a little bit more about the types of questions that international political economists would ask uh, today versus in the past? Great question. Uh, so in the past, it's, we, we still ask the same questions. Mm. Um, I just think a lot like how I'm doing my research compared to my advisor, Ron Rogowski, uh, we're able to more rigorously test those hypotheses or mm. those questions. So the question of, of you know, why do countries trade? 
Or why do countries protect domestic interests against trade? Mm. This is a question that's been going on um, you know, well before World War II, uh, when trade w- you know, was very unfettered, um, and it still happens today. You know, this is a, a campaign point of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in 2016. Mm. Um, and we still talk about about this today. Why is it that that Joe Biden has continued the uh, tariffs of the Trump administration? Well, we mm-hmm. can think about who supports these things and then mm-hmm. uh, have a better understanding. Uh, also, exchange rates. So I focus on exchange rates in my my work. Uh, so why do countries undervalue? Why do they overvalue? Uh, why do countries have fixed exchange rates or floating exchange rates? Uh, why do countries have pro-immigration policies versus anti-immigration policies? So anything that involves a movement of a good or individual uh, or capital across borders, all sorts of questions open up from mm-hmm. that. And those questions have, have been the same over time. Uh, it's just the, the institutions and, and uh, the time period tends to adjust how we think about those things. Mm, very interesting. So... What about your more recent research? Are you currently engaged in any research projects? Or if not, what have you done recently? Mm-hmm. So the dissertation is currently being turned into a book. Mm, uh, very so nice. that is something that's going to take probably another year. So I'll be on research leave next year and mm-hmm. hope to finish that up. Uh, and that's, again, all about, about um, why countries stop manipulating their currencies. Um, but also, as I said before, testing some of... Ron Rogowski's theories. So me and two colleagues, uh, Jim Bisbee at Vanderbilt University, he's an assistant professor there, and James Raymond Reland uh, at Princeton University, are using Ron's framework of you have an economic shock, uh, what happens to political coalitions after that shock? And we're applying the same thing to the 2008 global financial crisis, as well as the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic, uh, to see if this helps us understand a, a, a really big shift in politics in the United States. Mm-hmm. So you have you know, the election of Donald Trump, obviously in 2016, uh, but also the election of the Tea Party in mm-hmm. 2010, and really a rightward shift of the Republican Party um, and more anti-trade. And so what, what led to that? And so we're using really rich data uh, from firms to address that question. So as, as the shock hits certain firms, if they're exposed to the shock, um, their financial capital is obviously turned into political capital. So if they're hit harder, they lose financial capital, they also lose political capital. And so we can trace that uh, to who they're giving money to and if those candidates who are affected by this, if they're getting less money, both in terms of campaign contributions and lobbying, uh, and if those candidates then win or lose in their elections. And so our evidence so far shows that uh, Democrats tend to be hurt by this, by the 2008 global financial crisis. Republicans are more favored. Incumbents are also hurt. And challengers tend to, to get more mm. money. And less moderate candidates um, are also hurt. Or excuse me, less moderate candidates are are favored. Mm. And so you tend to see uh, more extreme candidates getting more money uh, and they're lobbied more by uh, the firms that were not exposed to the crisis. Mm. So th- those who still had political capital uh, are, tend to favor these, these non-moderate candidates. Could you go a, a little more into the specifics of what areas of the economy were the ones that were more adversely affected by the 2008 financial crises and which ones came out stronger? Mm-hmm. So our initial analysis uh, finds that mostly uh, globally exposed firms. So first, obviously, real estate. Real estate hit, is hit very hard. Uh, construction is hit also uh, very hard. The financial sector obviously implodes because of the global financial crisis. Um, and so those are the, the three kind of biggest areas. Uh, it tends to be non-tradables that are the ones that are more insulated. Mm-hmm. So hospitals tend to do okay. Um, you, you tend to see that uh, not-for-profits and think tanks are, are fine, the public sector, um, your local brewery, also okay. So people mm-hmm. tend to still go out even when you have a, a crisis. And so it tends to be these, um, these sectors who aren't hurt as much they're the ones who are giving more in terms of campaign contributions and, and they're lobbying more as well, mm. which is actually counterintuitive to what theory says. Theory says that it's actually those who most need the money are going to be the ones who are lobbying the most. goes back to a, a, f- a famous model in 1994 by uh, Grossman and Heltman, 
Uh, and our, our analysis actually shows the opposite of what they're predicting. Mm. It's actually those who are hurt the most that pull back um, from their political spending. Those who are relatively insulated, still hurt by the crisis, but they have a little bit uh, more political capital to spend, uh, they use that more. Mm. And could you elaborate a little bit more on how that that feeds directly into political coalition changes? Mm-hmm. So, so because of so a lot of these firms give to both Democrats and Republicans. Um, the financial services tend to to give uh, in, in certain cases more to Republicans, but in general, most big companies are giving to to both. Uh, Donald Trump, for instance. They were giving to his organization was giving to Democrats and Republicans prior to him running for for mm-hmm. election in 2016, so it's not surprising. Um, so if we imagine these very large firms pull back on their spending, and they're giving to Democrats and Republicans, um, but you have smaller firms, again relatively insulated, uh, giving money. Smaller firms were finding, um, and we were still trying to, to test this a little bit more rigorously with better data, smaller firms tend to give to, to more Republicans. Mm. And we, we presume it's because the main thing they're concerned about is taxes, uh, and Republicans run on a, a ticket of, of lowering taxes. And so if your main concern is taxes, you're going to give more money to Republicans. So it's the fact that these big firms are pulling back from giving to both Republicans and Democrats. Smaller firms are giving more to Republicans. And I presume the non-moderates are getting more money, maybe just because they're louder. Mm. Uh, and so they're speaking to, to to some of these companies. These are just thoughts. Uh, we haven't mm-hmm. been able to, to, to test that per se, but we just applied uh, to get access to uh, the U.S. Census data, which is restricted. Uh, and once we have access to that, we can actually look at every single firm in the U.S., match those firms to their political expenditures and lobbying or campaign contributions, and then see actually if this, if our, our tests are correct, our initial tests. Mm. And so hopefully this summer we'll be able to, to do that. Very interesting. And you mentioned data uh, a bunch. So could you talk about what data sources you tend to use and the importance of having good data sources? Mm-hmm. Good data is hard to find. It's mm. always <laughs> hard to find. Um, so there... There's always going to be a need to have um, qualitative support for a lot of these analyses. So you've you've talked to other professors like Professor Marcus Kreutzer. Uh, he uh, focuses on the history of things. History can help us understand uh, certain uh, political stories. Um, with quantitative analysis, it, it just allows us to to look at variation between countries and across time and uh, test these theories using quantitative data. Now, the data is often hard to find. So in the this current project I'm talking about with firms, the initial analysis we did, we weren't able to link our uh, firms to our campaign contributions. The only way to do so was to aggregate firms by the sector in which they worked mm. and then link that to the campaign contributions. So our, our, the analysis that I just talked about uh, and the results we have are, is all based on aggregations at the sector level. That often happens in quantitative analysis where it's really hard to get an exact match. But the Census Bureau has the universe mm. of, of firms, um, but it's hard to get at. And so... The publicly available data tends to be helpful, but not always the best. Uh, the restricted data is restricted for a reason because companies don't want us to know how much they're they're making, um, and so we have to go through a whole process of getting this application approved, um, getting special sworn status, saying that we're not going to share this information, and then we have to do all the analyses in house at one of their data centers. So we'll be mm. at Cornell uh, at some point over the summer, working their data center, trying to to uh, better test this. Very interesting. And what kind of models and analysis do you do on this data? So it really depends on the the question you're asking. So the question comes first. Um, From the question, you can begin to build a theory. Once you have your theory, you're able to figure out the best way of of testing that. So 
For example, I'm working on a, a paper with a colleague, Abigail Vaughn, um, at the Clinton Institute in uh, at the University of Arkansas, where we're trying to understand why firms, uh, or excuse me, why countries have allocated resources to uh, reshore parts of supply chains. So COVID-19 happens, supply chains shut down because of, of um, work shortages and uh, lockdowns. Um, but only a certain number of countries actually allocated funds to reshore those supply chains back home. So the U.S. has done so under Biden, uh, Japan has done so, South Korea has done so, and now Europe is in uh, conversations to do so. So we're trying to explain why. That's a, a, a case of three or four potentially countries who have done this. We can't use quantitative analysis to explain it. So mm -hmm. we're using case studies. Uh, in the case of the, the paper on on uh, how financial shocks can lead to uh, shifts in political coalitions. That we're using really rich data. So our first analysis, we had 14 million observations per year. So you can imagine how big the data set was. Um, and then we're using, we're trying to, to show a, uh, to causally identify what is leading to that shift. And in order to do so, we're using a matching technique where we, we match um, exposed firms versus insulated firms, and then seeing how they diverge or converge uh, after the shock hits. Mm. Uh, and so that's using uh, a, a method that requires a lot of computing power, um, but allows us to, to causally identify that when the shock happens, the shock is what's causing the, the changes in political outcomes mm. and not just uh, some spurious correlation. Very interesting. Um, so Moving on to some of your experience here at Villanova, how did you arrive here at Villanova and what type of classes do you teach here at Villanova? So I applied for the job that opened up uh, in 2019, uh, excuse me, in 2020, no, 2019, it was before the pandemic. Um, and I didn't think I was going to get the job because on the way that I, I drove here from Princeton, New Jersey, uh, in as I uh, got into my car, I had a flat tire. I was mm. using a uh, like a short-term rental. Um, and so I thought I was going to be late for my interview, and indeed I was. So mm. my first meeting with Professor Kreutzer, um, I was late too because I had a flat tire and had to find a different car. Uh, and then I also went to the wrong restaurant for my dinner. <laughs> um, there's two white dog cafes in the yes, area. Yes, there are. I went to the wrong one. <laughs> um, and so I, I left, and I, I loved the, the, my colleagues. I really enjoyed talking about my research, but I was like, oh, man, I blew this. Um, but I ended up getting the offer uh, after uh, some time. Uh, and I accepted because this is a wonderful place to be. So I arrived here um, in our first full semester back in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, and so it was kind of weird, I think, for, for faculty, but also obviously for students. Uh, my classes were on Zoom. I was teaching uh, international political economy uh, and then a graduate level course on European politics. Um, and I, it was wonderful to be back in the classroom because it had been about two years since I had been teaching. Um, but at the same time, as you remember, it was tough. Mm. It was just really yeah. tough to be on Zoom. So when spring rolled around, it was great to be back in person, but also still tough. Um, and then uh, my second year was finally when we're back in the classroom and everything felt good again. I think it's when I, I met you in mm -hmm. the, the class that, that you took with me. And I believe it was European politics. No, it, it was, was international um, political economy. Uh, it was... Um, I don't know. It wasn't called international political economy. It was about financial crises. Ah, you were in the politics of financial crisis yes, class. Yes, yes, that's okay. what it was called, yeah. So that was a class that I that Professor Kreutzer asked if I wanted to teach a, a class about somewhere something loosely connected to the pandemic, and mm -hmm. so I came up with that. Uh, and it's now one of my favorite classes I teach. Um, so I'm actually teaching that again uh, this semester. Nice. So basically every spring I've been teaching that class, and it's, Very been, nice. it's been great. So what are you trying to teach in that class, both in terms of content and in terms of analytical skills? So in terms of content, um, it's trying to understand why we keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. So if you recall, we, we start by, by talking about um, the psychology of, of markets. Are markets efficient? Are individuals rational? Um, why do individuals act irrationally? 
So we look at uh, certain cases of, of historical bubbles. So you have the, the Dutch tulip bubble, mm -hmm. the South Sea bubble, the Mississippi bubble. We talk about, uh, I think in your class, we talked about GameStop. Uh, in mm -hmm. other classes, we talk about Bitcoin. So all these bubbles and asset values, we try to understand what's the psychology behind it? Why did they happen? Then we move into um, more theories from IPE. So as globalization allows for capital to move across borders much easier, this allows investors to move money into economies, which is very helpful, but also allows them to take that money out when something bad happens. And it's usually the movement of money out of an economy that's going to lead to a, a massive crisis. So this is going to not only affect the economy, but also affect governments who are uh, taking on debt. And most of that debt's gonna be external to their economy. So they're, they're, if you're Argentina, you're taking debt in US dollars, not in Argentinian pesos. Mm. So that's going to have uh, an element of, of uh, crisis later. Um, and then the third part is looking at the global financial crisis and trying to understand what the heck happened. This was the biggest crisis to hit in the United States, really in the world since uh, the Great Depression in the 1930s. Um, and so trying to understand the political factors that led to it, going all the way back to deregulation in the 1980s under Reagan and Thatcher, um, and then all the way up to the, the, the crisis itself. And now that we're living through the COVID-19 pandemic, trying to understand, did we make similar mistakes? Uh, and how did the Trump administration and the Biden administration learn from the previous crises to have better public policy outcomes? Mm. And so what are some of the, uh, I guess, research and writing skills that you're trying to impart? That's right, you did ask about the analytical skills. So if you recall, I, I have students writing a lot. Uh, so in this case, it's, it's three papers, uh, which I guess doesn't seem like a lot now for a political science <laughs> class, uh, but they're, they're about like every three to four weeks. Um, and in those papers, I want students to use the theories we're talking about in class and apply those theories to a particular crisis. So in the first session, um, we, as I said before, we talked about different bubbles, so South Sea, uh, the Dutch Tulip bubble. In the second set of analyses, they're looking at sovereign debt crises and currency crises. So this semester, they're looking at Argentina in 2001, Mexico in 1982, and Russia in 1998. And then in the third section, uh, they're going to be looking at the global financial crisis in 2008 and comparing that to the either the COVID-19 crisis or to the Great Depression. So in those papers, they one, have to describe what's happening. Uh, two, I want them to use some element of quantitative data. So whether it's a figure they find on their own or if it's uh, some data that they put together. Last summer, I got a grant from the Villanova Institute of Teaching and it's vital, <laughs> whatever the L is, I forgot. Um, so vital gave me a, a, a mini grant to to build a data set that students can now use on my mm. webpage um, that allows them to grab data from any of these more contemporary crises and make their own plots. And mm. So now they can use their, uh, rather than having to put together something or find data on a Google search, they can actually put together their own data set uh, from that, so that's, that's been great. Um, and so they're using the quantitative data to help support um, what they're talking about, but always remembering to apply it to the theories they learned in class. Mm. Very interesting. So what are you teaching in global or international political economy? So that's going to be very abstract and theoretical. Mm. So it's, it's all elements of IP. So financial crises is really focused on, on sovereign debt and currency crises. Uh, and then in the case of 2008, banking crises. Um, in IPE, it's looking at every single element that plays into it. So we talk about international trade, and we spend pretty much the first half of the semester talking about all the theories around international trade. Second half of the semester then, we, we talk uh, about immigration, and a lot of those theories follow from, from international trade, uh, as well as exchange rate regimes, uh, and then a little bit on financial crises. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about one, I don't know if this is a theory or a framework, but the unholy trinity, I believe, as you called it. Uh, could you elaborate on what the three points of it are and why a country can't have all three? 
Good memory. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> You're a very good student. Uh, so the unholy trinity is what we call it in political science. This term comes from uh, Jerry Cohen at UC Santa Barbara. In economics, they often call it the impossible trinity or, um, yeah, we'll leave it at the impossible trinity. The theory is that there's three elements to your domestic political economy that you can have, uh, but you only get to choose two of them. So imagine a triangle. Uh, at the top of the triangle, you have open capital markets. So you, you allow for capital to move in or out of your country unfettered. The other element, so bottom left, uh, is going to be fixed exchange rates. So you can choose to have a fixed exchange rate. So imagine the gold standard. Uh, imagine uh, El Salvador fixed to the U.S. dollar. Argentina, in, right before its crisis in 2001, fixed to the U.S. dollar. Uh, China, 1995 to 2005, fixed to the U.S. dollar. And then the other part of it, uh, so the bottom right of this trinity, is having monetary autonomy. So you have your central bank has the ability to set interest rate policy for domestic purposes. So not to support the fixed exchange rate, but to support your domestic economy. And so the, the, uh, why it's called the unholy trinity is that you can't have all three. If you try to have all three, one of them's going to go. The one that usually falls the first is the fixed exchange rate. So in the case of Argentina in 2001, uh, they have a fixed exchange rate to the U.S. dollar. They also ha they don't have capital controls. So they have open uh, capital, and they're also using their monetary policy um, for domestic purposes. The one that goes is is the fixed exchange rate. Same thing with Mexico. Same thing with Russia. This is a, a story that happens over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a fixed exchange rate, it's very difficult to maintain that element of it. Uh, and usually countries will prohibit the ability of capital to move in or out of their borders, like China uh, in the 1990s and 2000s. Mm. Could you very quickly clarify the difference between monetary policy and financial or fiscal policy? Yes. Monetary policy is what the central bank does. So a central bank can raise or lower interest rates. Uh, fiscal policy is what the government does. So imagine the elected officials uh, spending money, taking in revenue, um, increasing the debt. This is this is fiscal policy. Mm -hmm. So two very distinctive things. Um, so now, could you talk about historical trends in the unholy trinity? Have there been eras where it was more common for countries to have two, and has it changed over time, or has it been relatively consistent? Great question. Uh, historically, I'm trying to think of a, 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 a current day example where this is happening. Um, you stumped me. Hmm. Uh, definitely over time, the unholy trinity has, it still holds relevance. Uh, so the fixed exchange rates in the the gold standard, or let's, let's go, actually, let's go to um, the post-World War II international order. So when Bretton Woods occurs in 1945, a group of, of countries come together to try to plan out the international political economy for uh, the next generation. Um, they decide to have fixed exchange rates. So every country is fixed to the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is fixed to gold. But they also control the movement of capital across borders, which is wonderful. Um, it's wonderful because you no longer have to, to worry about speculators speculating against your, your exchange rate. Um, but they also wanted countries to have the ability to set their interest rate policy. And so the central banks are there to uh, keep the uh, domestic economy going. So either to keep inflation in check or to keep uh, employment uh, relatively high. In the 1970s, as capital controls begin to more or less uh, become more open, so capital can flow more easily, you begin to have problems. And the problem happens in the United States. All right, so we have a lot of spending, so fiscal policy. Uh, the US spends a lot in the 1970s, Vietnam War, Great Society. Uh, the US is printing a lot of dollars to do this. The US doesn't have more gold to support how many dollars they're printing to, mm. to do this. 
Um, and so the first country that, that checks the U.S. on this is France. France uh, comes to the U.S. and demands its gold back. Uh, so they bring Navy ships, they get their gold, they, they bring it back to, to France. And this is kind of like the first speculative attack by a, a country. Interesting. Quite a dramatic event, I imagine. <laughs> Very dramatic. Uh, and this ends up leading to Nixon closing the gold window in the early 1970s. All right, and this ends the post-Bretton Woods, or excuse me, the post-World War II Bretton Woods international financial uh, system. Um, and so this is a case of the U.S. had fixed exchange rates to gold. The central bank, the U.S. Fed, is setting domestic interest rate policy. And they begin to allow capital to move freely across mm. borders. So once that comes off, something has to give. And in this case, it was the fixed exchange rate. Mm. So Nixon, so it even happens in the U.S. This is not just a developing world story. This is also a very rich mm. country like the United States as well. Very interesting. And that does conform to how you said ex the fixed exchange rate usually goes out the window first. Right. So you've mentioned a few times Argentina. Mm -hmm. uh, and Argentina stuck out to me in our class as a country that had uh, significant problems with, uh, like, you know, m financial, like, markets and, and dealing with banking crises and stuff like that. So could you talk a little bit about why Argentina is, uh, I think, frequently talked about as a country? That has issues like this? So it's not alone. Uh, that's the main thing. Um, we talk about Argentina a lot because this is the biggest sovereign default in history. Mm. Uh, so in 2001, they just they had a, a ton of debt. Most of that debt's issued in a foreign currency. And when they defaulted on it, this was major news. Uh, this was still major news as, as of a few years ago uh, when in London, the domestic courts were ordering Argentina to pay uh, bondholders uh, in in the eurozone, um, and they in the U.S. courts they were ordering Argentina to pay I believe it was Elliott uh, Management or Elliott Capital uh, for the debt that was defaulted back in 2001. So this is you know 20 years later they're still talking about this. Um, so it's not necessarily that it's different. It was just it was the the intensity of it was way more mm. than most other countries. Russia in 1998 also a massive crisis, um, just a little bit less than in Argentina. And so it's not really special about Argentina. It's just the intensity of it was was mm. quite a lot. But it's the same story again over and over again. This happens uh, twice to Mexico, 1982, 1994. Happens to Brazil, 1982. Happens to Russia, 1998. Uh, happens to multiple countries in East Asia in the late 1990s. So South Korea, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore in 1997. So Argentina is not alone in mm. this. Argentina uh, is not special. <laughs> but Argentina is special in that the uh, the size of the the crisis was much larger than mm. the, the other countries. They took on way more debt. Very interesting. And... What do countries do when these crises hit? How do they recover? Uh, how does the IMF and World Bank get involved? So it's usually the IMF that gets involved. Um, the recovery process is usually very slow and not great and not easy. Uh, the IMF has a bad uh, rap for imposing certain conditions on countries for a bailout. Uh, so th the reason why at least the explanation that they give, the reason why, is because they're trying to um, get rid of any sort of moral hazard. So if a, a country can easily get a bailout and there's no conditions attached, what's to stop them from doing it again? Hmm. That's how the story goes. Um, but since the COVID-19 crisis, we've seen the IMF make a shift in how they talk about these things. So rather than telling advanced countries when they have a crisis that you need to stimulate your economies and then developing uh, countries when they have a crisis, you need to engage in austerity. So cut spending, raise taxes. When COVID-19 happened, the IMF said everyone needs to spend. And advanced countries, you need to suspend debt repayment for some of these poorer countries. Um, and so they, they kind of went against 50, 60, mm. 70 years of, of what they were doing before. And so this still doesn't mean that it's easy for for developing countries. It's still quite difficult. Um, but it does seem that the IMF is, is loosening up a little bit. Uh, but there's still going to be conditions placed on these countries, and they're still not going to be easy. Now, the World Bank doesn't play um, 
as much of a role in this. It's more of a that's it's going to be more for development. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the bigger story more recently has been the influence of China. So it used to mm-hmm. be that the major creditor countries and the IMF were the ones engaging in negotiations on how to restructure a country's debt if they default. Now China is a major player. So with the Belt and Road Initiative, China has has loaned a lot of money to countries. Uh, so currently in Zambia, they are engaging in, in a debt restructuring conversation that usually would be the U.S. and the IMF having this discussion. Now China's a major player. Uh, and so Janet Yellen's been in conversation uh, with the IMF on, on how, what to do with this debt. Um, and China doesn't want to take a haircut as the, the U.S. is pushing for and the IMF is pushing for. And so this is going to play out for much longer than we, we've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. There used to be a little bit more cooperation. I don't think this cooperation was good for developing countries, but it used to go uh, much quicker. And now we have a new major player, which is China. So I think that's the major shift mm. we've seen, uh, at least in the last decade. Very interesting. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between IMF conditionality and UN Security Council votes? Very good memory. I'm very happy <laughs> that you remember all this. This is a very interesting class. I really, I really like learning about this. I find it fascinating. So my my co-author uh, on the paper that we spent a significant time talking about, uh, Jimmy Ray Reeland, James Raymond Reeland, we just call him Jimmy Ray, um, his work is on IMF conditionality. A lot of his work is, and, and uh, just the institution of the IMF. He had a book come out in 2014, I believe, uh, with Axel Dreyer, uh, who is based in Germany, I believe still, yes. Um, and in this book, they talk about the influence of being a temporary member on the UN Security Council and how that affects your conditionality on IMF loans. And in the class that you took with me, we read one of the papers that came out, I think about a year or two after the, the book was published. Um, and in that they show that if you are elected to the UN Security Council, and when we think of the UN Security Council, so let me take a step back, when we think about it, uh, we usually think of the U.S. and Russia um, vetoing each other. So there's five uh, permanent members. There's also 12, yeah, 12 non-permanent members. And those temporary members are going to be elected. And they come from different regions. Now, when you get onto the U.N. Security Council, you're there for two years. Um, and you surprisingly have a lot of influence. So... You have to have a, uh, a majority vote for certain things to pass, uh, and you can be influenced by some of the major players. And so what that, that research shows is that if you are in an IMF program, meaning you need some sort of bailout or you need some funds from the IMF, you tend to have less conditions put on you from that IMF program if you are a member of the UN Security Council. So if you are a temporary member, so let's let's think of, of um, so classic cases from the, the Gulf War. Uh, I believe one of the cases was, I'm trying to think the exact cases. Was it uh, like Zambia or? Zaire. Zaire. Oh yeah. I believe it was Zaire. Okay, so Zaire is a temporary member in 1991. Uh, they are against, or they, rather, they're they're thinking about voting uh, against the uh, Kuwait war, or the the invasion of, of Iraq. Um, the U.S. is going to uh, potentially withhold funds if they vote um, against the U.S. Uh, they then vote with the U.S. and they have very good conditionality, very mm-hmm. few conditions put on their their loan. Um, and there's, there's tons of examples. I'm trying to think uh, exactly which all these were, uh, but there's plenty of examples where the U.S. has clearly shown that this has a major impact. Uh, President Obama um, visited uh, Gabon in, uh, I forgot the exact year, uh, but this is when they're trying to get support for um, the, uh, re- the, the war against Gaddafi in Libya. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Secretary of State Clinton, Hillary Clinton, talks about 
why she goes to Togo. So she she makes a visit to to Togo. Um, and at that point, Togo is on the UN Security Council, and she says she's doing this because she may need a favor at mm-hmm. some point in the future. Uh, Yemen votes against the U.S. in 1991, um, and James Baker, uh, who is the Secretary of State, withholds a ton of aid to, to Yemen. And so we can clearly see how the U.S. is using its influence uh, in the U.N. Security Council, both for general foreign policy, but also we can see how this plays out with IMF programs. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So another question that I have is why some countries can borrow a lot of debt and not default, not have problems, and others cannot. Like, I think of Japan as a good example of a country that's taken on a a tremendous amount of debt and yet still has a functioning economy uh, versus, like, uh, I, I can't think of a good example, but another country, if they borrow that amount, they would almost certainly default. Japan is a very big economy, so it's huge. Um the likelihood of them defaulting is quite low, but yes, their their debt levels are, are very, very high. Uh, the U.S. debt levels are also uh, quite high. But if you look at how much these countries are paying on it, it it's manageable, mm-hmm. right? So as, as long as the economies are still growing, or at least not shrinking a lot, they're, they're going to be okay. Certain countries find it less manageable. Uh, so a classic case is going to be Greece, so Greece um, has a bailout in, in 2015, multiple bailout, bailouts during the, the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis. Um, and the conditions put on Greece don't allow the country to grow, which they need to if they're going to, to pay off that debt. Moreover, they need to export goods. So they need to, to have these extra funds to, to pay down that debt. In the Eurozone, it's less easy to do that because they're in competition with a place like Germany. Germany doesn't import a lot, they export a lot. So one of the arguments at that point was Germany needs to to spend more money, uh, and the Germans, being uh, the order liberals that they are, did not want to, to spend that money. Uh, so it's more about how large your economy is and how, not easy it is, but how able you are uh, given your local and the global political economy, how able you are to to export goods. Japan exports a lot. Um, Greece is not exporting as many high-end goods. It's going to be more uh, primary primary goods. Okay, very interesting. So, kind of circling back to your uh, you know you know academic experience, you spent some time in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you talk about what you were doing there? Uh, what you were studying? Do you speak German? I kind of alluded to that earlier. I do. Um, Do I speak it well? No, (laughs) especially not anymore. Um, So when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, um, I graduated uh, undergrad during the global financial crisis. I worked in real estate for a bit. Um, I enjoyed the work I did. I I learned a lot and I wanted to know more about um, financial crises, hence why I'm teaching this class Mm -hmm. as well. and when I, I, w- I went back to school at, to NYU and I did a master's in political science, but it wasn't the training that I, I knew I needed if I wanted to answer some of the questions I had. Um, but I also didn't want to take on debt. Uh, so I f- tried to find some good master's programs that were relatively cheap. In Berlin, there was an English, uh, it was taught in English. Uh, it's a master's in economics and management science. Uh, and it's free. Um, so higher education in Germany is free, even to people from outside the country. The expenses I paid were um, about 150 euros per semester. That's basically for my, my train ticket. Wow. Uh, and then at that point, Berlin was still relatively cheap to live. And so I was paying you know, 200 euros uh, for my flat I was living in per month. So it wasn't expensive. So it allowed me to, all the savings I had from post-graduation, I was able to use that until I can get a job. And then I was able to get a job in, in, in Germany as well. So I went there to basically understand economics better so I can address some of the questions that I had because mm. I, I didn't think I was able to do that with the political science degree I had. Mm. Very interesting. Um, do you have any uh, memories of the intellectual climate there being different than it is here in the States? Very different. Uh, so the beca- I think because it's free, there's a lot more students in the classroom. So almost all of my classes were large lecture halls. 
one of my favorite things that I took away from that, and I, I God, I wish we did this here, uh, is students actually clap at the end of every lecture. Oh. But instead of clapping their hands, they knock on the desk. And hmm. uh, so this just sounds like someone's knocking at the door. Uh, and it's at the end of every single lecture. Uh, even if it's a small seminar room, everyone everyone does it. I think that's a it's, it's a nice feature. Um, I mean, what better way to end a class than have the entire student <laughs> yeah, body yeah. clapping for you? Uh, so that was one thing. Uh, the other thing is I never studied economics at all. Uh, and so for mm. me, it was, it was very challenging. I spent a lot of time in the library trying to, to work through the theories, work through the math, and just understand what the heck I was reading. And it, mm. that took a lot. Uh, but academically, I think it was just the size of the classes. Um, and that, I think, was the, the big difference. Uh, but also because I, I haven't taken economics in the United States, I, I don't know how different it is, mm. but very different from a political science class where it's more... In political science is more discussion, uh, more, you know, kind of working through the theory mm. using words. Uh, in this, it was mostly working through things with math. Very cool. So last question that I have for our listeners that are interested in learning more about international political economy, where is a good place to start? What are some books you may recommend? Great question. Um, so the, the one that popped in my head right away is Jeffrey Frieden's book, Global Capitalism. So he kind of goes through the history of, of capitalism from the 1800s all mm-hmm. the way to the present. Uh, so he just uh, did a recent update to it where he includes the global financial crisis. I believe the first version came out in 2007. But in that, he also is using the theories of IPE to understand the history of the global political economy. So he talks about Argentina in 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also talks about uh, U.S. Uh, conversations around exchange rates back in the late 19th century. So William Jennings Bryan talking, uh, the first mm-hmm. one of the famous populists in U.S. politics, uh, talking about getting off the gold standard. Right, bimetallism. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So wanting to move away from that uh, because it wasn't good for, uh, for farmers in the U.S. Uh, so I think that's a, a classic text that, uh, that I think is, is easy for, for anybody, the layperson, to mm-hmm. work their way through. I would start there uh, and see who he cites. That's always the mm, best way to figure right. out what to read. As long as you have one major source, go to the index, see who they're citing, and that's always a good way. Uh, another one, if you're looking for a intellectual history of IPE, uh, Jerry Cohen, the the person who came up with the, the idea of the mm. unholy trinity or gave it that name, uh, he has a book I think actually called The Intellectual History of, of IP, where he talks about both the British side of it but also mm. the, the U.S. Um, side mm. of IP. So I think that's also a, a really good one. Um, less about the, the theory and understanding the theory and more just trying to understand how we got to where we are today with this uh, with. IPE, and I believe he's got a new updated version of that book coming out soon, too. All right, very cool. Thank you. You're welcome. So, thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah. This has been ProfCast, uh, made by WXVU. We will see you next time. Uh,